You know, we, we were singing a while ago, and I believe David prayed it, and, and it really resonated with me. It's something that has been building up. I hear it from you. You know, there's times I come and say, guys, here's what I'm hearing from God. And, and there's other times where, where I'm hearing from you what God is doing. And, it, and that's really the way the church works. It, it kind of flows this way. And, and I hear a lot of people saying, we want, to, we want a fresh move of the Holy Spirit. We want, to, we want to see in our day God's power exhibited in us, not just for the sake of power, but of life change, true transformation. And you know, what we've been talking about in the book of Philippians is one of the keys to that, and yet it's one of those, those topics you kind of go, oh, okay, yeah, I get that. But truly, there is no move of the Spirit where there is no unity. There, 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 is no, you, there is no move of the Spirit where people are not like-minded and coming together saying, we are about the kingdom of God, and we want to see Christ lifted up. And today, in this uh, joy ride we've been taking through the book of Philippians, I, I feel like Groundhog Day a little bit because we're hitting unity again, because Paul knew how important it was that he wouldn't let it go. So if you will, open your Bibles, and let's get ready to dive in. We're going to be in chapter 2, because as we think about it, Paul is pushing in about what does it look like when, when the church is moving forward, when the church is moving together, what is the impact in the community and around people's lives, and, and he really brought it around this thought of unity, and I, I want to say because this is one of those things for pastors that's kind of awkward. There, there are certain topics when you preach on them, it just naturally puts in people's minds like, oh, there must be trouble here. You know? Hey, if he's hitting unity three weeks in a row, there must be an issue around here. I'm hitting unity three weeks in a row because we're preaching through the book of Philippians. And when you do that, you can't hunt and peck. You've got to take what God has because he's trying to say something to us. Yeah. And I will say that I truly believe in preemptive preaching. I'd rather set the tone of what is right and you go live it than have to correct it. Amen? I, I think that's, uh, that's something we know as parents and it's something that we definitely know as, as believers. So take today as preemptive preaching. Don't get the conspiracy mindset, well, like, I wonder what's happening around here. I think great things are happening around here. Y'all are, are the easiest bunch of people I've ever pastored in my life because I really believe when God brought together real people seeking real hope, can I tell you, he'll do some amazing things if we keep him the main thing. So today, I just want to just emphasize again, we're going to look at this passage, but, but Paul said this to the church even in Ephesus, Ephesians 4 or 3, it'll be on your screen, and say, he said that we are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. To make every effort. Unity is a gift of God. We, we established that a few weeks ago. It comes from our Father. We just don't like, okay, we're going to be unified. No, it's a gift from God, but it's a gift to be protected and it's an effort that it takes to keep. Otherwise, we drift away from unity and we end up in disunity. And I would say in the last couple of years in the church in America, I'm just going to be blunt, we've gotten disunified over things that don't even matter in the kingdom of God. And we've got to come back to that central place again of what we are about. We are citizens of heaven. We are made in the image of God. We, we, we are image bearers wherever we go. And our words should be about him and not just about all the other stuff that goes on around us. Because here's what happens when unity is not there. When unity is not there, then any momentum of the Spirit is diminished. Problems get magnified. Little things become big things that really aren't big things to begin with. And ministry becomes destabilized and churches honestly go into decline. And that's why Paul said it in every epistle he wrote, no matter what church he was addressing, he says, make unity a key focus of whatever you 
you do? He said it to the church in Rome. He said it to the church in Corinth, to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Philippi, to the church at Colossae, to the church at Thessalonica. I think Paul knew something that we should know today. And that is when there is unity of the Spirit, there God is honored, and there amazing things happen. Now, I will have to say, and I know we're going to get into Philippians 2 in just a second, in the church at Philippi, there really was a problem. I mean, in this book of joy, right, this book that's like, it's a joy ride, there was a problem. And Paul called it out. Just, just for a second, go over to chapter 4 in Philippians, chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. He says it very well, but he says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat in Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Can you imagine being called out by the Apostle Paul for all eternity in the canon of Scripture because you weren't getting along? I mean, think about that. We get to heaven, it's like, oh, you're Yodia. Yeah, we've heard of you, you know. Uh, or Syntyche, hey, what was y'all's problem anyway? Because Paul did not elaborate. But he's saying, hey, would you pray that these women that I labor with who are saved, their names in the Lamb's Book of Life, but they're causing disunity. God does not put up with disunity. So he called it out because he was serious about this need, so much so that in chapter 2 we read that really because of what Christ has done for us, the least we can do is learn to work together and to love each other the way God loves us. Because of all he's done for us, the least we can do is put others before us, he said in Scripture. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 2, it'll be on the screen, he says, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. He went on to say, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather than humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. What an amazing world it would be if we lived that way. What an amazing family it would be if we lived that way. What amazing marriage it would be if we lived that way. What amazing children we would have. If we lived in that sense of, I'm going to put you before me. I'm going to put, I'm going to put you before me. It takes humility to live in unity, doesn't it? And Christ was the ultimate example of that humility. And that was what we looked at last week, how he came and he, he, bore, he took upon himself the, the, the servanthood of man. He came and laid down the prerogatives of his deity and said, I'm going to walk as a servant and show you how it's done. Not with divine power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit that's available to every one of us. What an example, what a model we have of, of unity when we see Jesus serving. He did not come to be served, but to serve. And now today, we come to this next passage, and, we, and we'll wrap up this thought of unity. And I, I call this message today, the joy thief. Now, how many know if you knew the thief was coming to your house, you'd bar the doors, right? You know, if the thief was coming to steal, you wouldn't like hand him your key and say, hey, I'll make it easy for you. And in the same way, if there is a thief that comes after our joy, how many know we need to bow up and say, not in my house, not in my house. And that's what we're going to talk about today, but it's a thief that you may not expect it to be. So let's look at this scripture together. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12. He says, therefore, and if you read the Bible, whenever you see the word therefore, you kind of put in there because. So in other words, what he's saying, because of all I just talked about, because of all that I just shared about Christ, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Paul, very quickly, is not telling you and I to go work for our salvation. He's not saying, hey, work it out, you know, just fear and trembling, hang in there, maybe you'll be saved. No, that's not what he's talking about at all, because we are saved by grace through faith. 
It is not of works. Otherwise, we'd be boastful, wouldn't we? Like, look at me. I did it. No, we are, we are saved by grace through faith. And we recognize that because we cannot work our way to salvation. Listen, on my best day, my righteousness, my goodness is like filthy rags in the eyes of our God. On my best day, I fall way short of the glory of God. But because I gave my life to Christ and I surrendered to his lordship, I take on the righteousness of Christ. And when my father sees me, he sees the robe of righteousness. He sees Christ in me. And he says, that's my child. So we've got to recognize, he's not saying work out your salvation. In fact, it's interesting in the original language, when we see that word you here, it really is a plural. He's saying, hey, Philippian church, work out your salvation. Work out your walk together in Christ. Work out your witness together in fear and in trembling. The message version makes it a little easier to understand, I think. Philippians 2.12 in the message says this. What I'm getting at, friends is that you should simply keep on doing what you've done from the beginning. When I was living among you, you lived in responsive obedience. Now that I'm separated from you, keep it up. Better yet, redouble your efforts. Be energetic in your life of salvation, reverent and sensitive before God. That energy is God's energy, an energy deep within you, and God himself willing and working at what will give him the most pleasure. That's salvation. That's our salvation. That's us working together in that. You know, we tend to look at salvation through the lens of a personal experience. We, we tr- that translates us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And that, that is true. There is a moment where salvation is absolutely ultimately personal. We use the terms like when you were saved as if, as if salvation is some kind of static experience. Well, back in 1985, I got saved. I hadn't done anything since, but I got saved back in 1985. No, that's that's not how it works. In fact, if you think back to our study of the book of Romans a few years back, salvation's in three parts. There is that justification, the day we surrender our life to Christ and receive him as Lord, that's the moment that we are saved. Right there, we are are bound for eternity with our Father in heaven, amen? He is working in us. There is something that changes in that moment. We call that justification. But then there's this process that begins called sanctification. It is where God is working in you, changing you from the inside out. If you got saved in 1985 and you're the same mean-spirited, uh, selfish, uh, whatever other terms I'm going to put to you than you were back then, then I'm, I'm, I'm questioning whether you really surrendered your life to Christ or not. Because in that moment, the Holy Spirit comes in you. And the Holy Spirit begins to work inside of us. And all of a sudden, we're seeing the world through a different lens. Although we're seeing different people through different lenses. We're seeing ourselves through a different lens. And he is changing us from the inside out. That's sanctification. Then ultimately, praise God, there is glorification. And that is the day where where no longer will sin have any impact on our lives because we'll be with God forever in heaven. And that that is the glorification. And that's when we can say, yes, we are truly, truly saved. So when we see salvation through this lens and recognize that we're all going to be in heaven together someday. What Paul is saying, let what's going to happen in the future affect the way you interact as the church right now. If we're going to spend eternity together, we might ought to not only say we love each other, we might learn to like each other, right? You know, truly some Christians, according to how they act and what they say, aren't really happy about that fact. They're like, oh, I can't wait for heaven, but man, I hope so-and-so is far, far away from me. You know, I hope there's like subdivisions and they're not allowed in, you know, but I'm okay with them being saved, but I'm not so sure about whether I want to hang out with them for eternity. Someone put it this way poetically, to live above with saints we love, oh, that'll be glory. 
To live below with saints we know, now that's a different story. But I got news for you. The so-and-so you hope is not near you, oh, God's got a room in his house for you. And guess what? It's right next to their room for all of eternity because God wants us to live in a unity. After all, he says we are citizens of heaven. Our earthly existence is, is temporary. It's important. It's powerful. But it's temporary. If our mindset is that of citizens of heaven, then we see each other, we see the world differently, we understand our impact in it. So he said, do this with fear and trembling. In other words, in awe of all that Christ has done, the least we can do with trembling, what he's calling us to do is in a practical way, learn to treat each other in a way that God says he gets pleasure out of. It's like when you see those of you that are parents, it's like when you see your kids really getting along great. It's like when you see them really loving each other. I know it's rare, and I know it's only glimpses and moments in certain ages. But can I tell you, it makes you feel good, doesn't it? God wants that all the time when it comes to the body of Christ. He wants that all the time because he says that we have been created to walk in unity and so much so that he warns us not to cause disunity because God takes it very, very seriously. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 17, speaking about the church, he said, if anyone destroys God's temple, now in this, in this passage, he's speaking about the church as a whole. He says, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are the temple. How many know that God loves the church of Jesus Christ? And by the way, we should all belong to a church of Jesus Christ if we are believers. And not only that, he says, we are to be like-minded and deeply committed, growing in unity with one another in that local church. I shared it a few weeks back. Listen, guys, you will never find a church where you like everything about it. In fact, you may be sitting next to what you don't like about it. There, there you'll never find a church that you'll like everything about it. Yet, God wants you in a church where you can be like-minded, saying, we, we're going to do the mission together. We're going we're to follow the uniqueness of that body of Christ, because praise God, every body of Christ is unique, amen? Some more unique than others, but there's a reason for that, because it is calling on us to reach people for the Lord that may not otherwise be met by another body of Christ, because again, God made us so uniquely. I, I share this with, with you. When people are looking for a church, I kind of I share what I heard years ago by this old couple in a marriage seminar one time. They were, they were in their mid-80s, and they've been married for like you know, 60 years or something. And, and someone says, well, what was the secret of your marriage? How did you stay together that long? And the young gentleman raised his hand, and he said, well, we went into marriage with both eyes wide open. And the moment we said, I do, we closed one eye. And I think it's the same with the church. You go in with both eyes wide open. Do I agree with what they're teaching? Do I agree with what they're doing? Do I agree with where we're going? But the moment we say yes to that, we put a hand over the other eye and say, God, I'm just going to ignore the things that I, I don't necessarily grow with, God, but I'm going to pray because it's the body of Christ, and I'm going to have unity within that. Listen, guys, it is, it is so critical. Say, Mike, why do we need a church? Why do we need to be part of the body of Christ? Because so much of the scripture God has called us to walk with, we can't fulfill if we're just out there on our own. Just can't do it. I'll say it boldly, and y'all, the video audience, y'all know, I'll say it. There, there's, you, can, you, can, you can take in part of a great sermon, you can take part of a great message, great worship, everything else at home, but you can't be the body of Christ if you're not connected. You just can't. And that's why we're longing for the days where we see it grow in that once again. Listen, I hear this all the time. It's one of those things that I run into, and someone will say, well, pastor, I just can't find the right church in me. I've been to all of them, and there's just not one that I fit in whatsoever. Well, I did some calculation last night. In the city of Charlotte alone, it would take you 18 years if you went every Sunday 
to visit every church in Charlotte, North Carolina. 18 years. So I have a better, I have a better rationale for you saying, I just can't find a church. I just can't find a church. And I would say, you know what? I know exactly where you ought to look. Really? Yeah, in the mirror. Because if you can't find one, the problem's not the church, it's you. I know this is not going to be your favorite sermon of the year. I knew it when I was writing it. I'm like, hey, I just teach it. God, you know, Paul wrote it. It's where, it's where it is, okay? Because God loves the church. That's why in verse 13 he says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God takes pleasure in the church. And that word works is interesting. Because in the original Greek, it speaks of God energizing your life and energizing my life and energizing your life. And we come together, he energizes the church through the word and the spirit so then that we would be effective in fulfilling his will and his purpose. It, it harkens back to Philippians 1.6 when we started this series out where he says that being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You may not see it as much as you want, but can I tell you, God is at work in you. No matter what type of relationship or no relationship you have with him, he is at work in you because he would that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. And God is at work in his church, and he energizes you and the church to carry out his will. But if we, if we walk in disunity or speak against the church, what we're doing is we're not working against the church, we're working against God. Because this was his design. It's not man's. In fact, what I do here, the word calls the foolishness of preaching. <laughs> but God works through that. And I don't even know that I say I get it, but yet God works through that. Why? Because the church is God's idea. Whole church was God's idea. Who supernaturally raised it up from an old dirty theater. And, and God is working in a place. He's building the church. He's saving people. He's drawing people to himself. He's empowering people. Why? Because God loves the lost. He didn't send his angels to be witness. He sent us. He didn't just write it across the sky, I love you. No, he sends you and I out into the world that everyone we interact with say, let me tell you, whether you, you think it or not, God absolutely does love you. And he, has, he, does, he does have something for your life. Listen, every church is God's church. He calls it the bride of Christ. So be very, very careful whenever you call his bride ugly. God doesn't like that. Did I say this is preventative preaching today? Are we okay? Take a breath. Whew. Yeah. My wife's not here to protect me, so the filter's gone right now. Yeah. She always worries when she's not here. She's like, you're going to say stuff you shouldn't say when I'm out there. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that's all right. So with this in mind, Paul gives us some very practical teaching in one long sentence. So pick it up in verse 14, and here comes the practical side of Paul. He said, so to live out this unity, do all things without grumbling or disputing. What does all mean in Scripture? everything. Whether it's your church, whether it's your work, whether any area of your life, Paul's saying don't go through life just complaining about everything. Complain about your job, complain about your kids, your marriage, your house, your neighborhood, your church. He says no. Don't, don't be grumbling about anything. Why? And the reason why is because grumbling and complaining spreads. It does. Your complaints are beginning to get taken up by others and before long you've infected others with your discontent and with your own unhappiness, when they were perfectly defined before you. You see it in families. Man, I don't like my house. Next thing you know, the husband's like, yeah, I don't like the house either. Next thing you know, the kids are like, I don't like my bedroom. 
I don't like our neighborhood. Before long, and it may be, you know, instead of saying, God, you've given us shelter. It is amazing. We are not on the street, God. we got a place to live. we got a neighborhood. We're, we're, we're available to be salt and light in this. But before long, we get so caught up in grumbling and complaining, it spreads to all of us, and now there's no happiness, there's no contentment in the midst of what God has blessed you with. The Bible warns us, this is to be very careful when you cause a little one to stumble. There's, a, there's something about a millstone in there. Go, go find it. So Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? Because grumbling spreads. Number two, why? Because it dishonors God. You see, when we grumble, complain, whether it be our, about our house, our kids, our spouse, our job, our church, the one we are complaining about is not them, it's about God. Saying, God, I don't like how you've ordered my life. God, I, I don't like how you've ordered my life. But yet, we're quick to say, but the steps of the righteous are ordered by God. And they are. But yet we complain as if they're not. And Paul's saying that's not the way it should work. He's saying, look, they're ordered by God. Let me, let me speak boldly for a moment. Can I do that just, just straight out? I know Denise is not here. It's okay. When you say that we love God, what we mean is we love him for who he is. Yes? yes. Praise God. But yet truly often what we really mean is we, we only love God for what he does for us. So when we do that, what we've done is we've created an equation that doesn't work. We say our faith is based on God plus. But it has to be on God and God alone. Because all you do, and the reason we started our church with a cross up by the stage, and that's the same cross from 14 years ago in the theater, is because I want us to never forget, if that's all he did for us, it was enough. <laughs> it was enough. And that alone should cause us to worship him. You see, if God is working our life, he cares about every aspect of our life. So when we say, I don't like it, what we're saying is, I don't like how God is working in my life. So Paul said something in this passage of scripture to kind of bring it to his audience, and I'm going to bring it to us today to understand it in this way. He, he picked a phrase out of the Old Testament in verse 14 that he did purposely. Paul was, a, Paul was a rabbi. He was super intelligent in the Old Testament scriptures, and he picked this phrase out to remind his readers of a story that says, God really doesn't like grumbling. And it's when he used the word, the phrase, the crooked and twisted generation, uh, there in verse 14. And what he was speaking to was uh, a passage in the book of Numbers that was referring to the children of Israel when they had come out of Egypt. If you remember the story real fast, 400 years, the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt. They were in bondage. They were forced to work in conditions that we can't even imagine. 400 years and then God sent Moses to deliver them from Pharaoh's hand, and God had to bring some extreme measures. He brought 10 plagues against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Until finally, Pharaoh said, go, get these people out of here. I can't stand against your God. And now they go, and he come to the Red Sea, and miraculously, God parts the Red Sea, and literally about a million people cross on dry land through the Red Sea. Why? Because God was doing a miraculous work in their lives. But as soon as they got on the other side, they ran into a little problem. They got thirsty. They didn't have enough water. And what did they do? They began to grumble about what God had done for them. Look at this on Exodus 15, 24. It should be on the screen. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are were we to drink? Later in Exodus 16, 2, they were troubled because now they didn't have the food they wanted. And it says in Exodus 16, 2, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Now it's growing, right? And then Exodus 17, verse 2, now they're getting a little further because again they got thirsty and they didn't know where it was going to come from. Oh, by the way, the one who parted the sea, 
also opened up a rock that water gushed out enough for everybody. But, it, but, but how quick we are to forget his miracles, right? In Exodus 72, it says, it says this, 17:2. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Listen, when we are constantly grumbling about our circumstances, we are constantly grumbling about our God. We're just saying, God, you're not good enough. We're not mad about the car we drive. We're really not. We're not mad that our neighbor has a better car. Or we're not mad about the house next door or we like it better or, or any other thing like that. What we're saying is, God, we just don't like the way you're working in my life. I really believe, it's just personal. We're a nation of grumblers. We are. Can I tell you how hard it was writing this message this week? Because guess what? I was in a week of grumbling. I was. There was just nothing was going right this week. My, my daughter flew in for her bridal shower, man, where we got people coming all over the nation to come to it, and the host the night before the shower catches COVID. Had to cancel the whole thing. And I'm like, thanks, God. I'm talking about grumbling tomorrow morning. This is awesome. But we're a nation of whiners. And really what it is is this. If we don't take a hold of this, that grumbling robs us of our joy and it insults our God. And my theory is this. The more you have sometimes, the more you complain. And we are blessed beyond excess in our nation compared to the rest of the world. And we have to admit that, that we've got to stop whining and give God thanks sometimes. Doesn't mean it's perfect, but man, it's a lot better than most. So we've got to be careful with that because God detests and God judges complaints. Look at Numbers 11, verse 1, and we'll get back to Philippians. In Numbers 11, verse 1, he says this, Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some on the outskirts of the camp. <laughs> but we're like, God, same yesterday, today, and forever. Just not that. <laughs> Just not that. I read that, and I wanted to do a whole different sermon on don't live on the outskirts of the camp. Because <laughs> uh, it's where the, they got picked off. Uh, we usually teach that, that Satan picks them off, but God's like, I'll take them out. That's why, because they were grumbling against God. They were grumbling against his leader because God had put someone in place to serve them. Listen, when you're grumbling about the authority God has established in your life, you're saying to God, I don't think you love me, God, and I don't think you really care about me. Whether that's your boss, whether that's your parents, young person, whether it's your coach, ministry leader. No, God takes it personally when his children grumble. There's a passage in the New Testament we really like to quote a lot. It kind of justifies why we even have the Old Testament. It's found in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. And we, we do use it a lot, and, and rightfully so, but sometimes we don't read the context around it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, it says, Now these things happened to them, speaking about the Old Testament, as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. In other words, we, we learn things through the Old Testament. We see processes. We see some things how God works. But when we read that, we're like, yeah, of course we do. We like David and Goliath. We like the, the creation story, all these things. But then if you put the context in verses 9 and 10, he says this. We must not put Christ to the test. As some did when they were destroyed by serpents. This is talking about the children of Israel again when they were involved in sexual immorality nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. It's a serious thing to be a grumbler. It's a serious thing to be a complainer about any part of your life. But back to the church. Let's get back here. 
Now, I know what you're going to say, and I know what some would say even now. If I was sitting in your shoes, I, or in your seat, I would say this too. Well, wait, wait, wait a second. What, what if in the church something's wrong? It's fair, isn't it? What, what, what within the church something is happening that's wrong? Here, here's what I'd say. If it is illegal or immoral, by all means, take it to the leadership. <laughs> and, if it's, if, and if the leadership doesn't address it, take it to the authorities that are above leadership. That's why we are part of the Assemblies of God, because every one of us needs accountability. And I'm a man under authority. I'm not the final word around this place. But take it to the leadership. They may not be even aware of it. But if something is a concern, we, we like that word concern. Pastor, I have a concern of what's happening in the church. I'm like, all right, what do you not like? Do you not like David? I can't do anything about that. You know, song selection, eh, well, get over it. Um, but we use that word concern. And then we quickly turn like, and Pastor, I believe everybody's concerned. You know what I've learned over 32 years of ministry? Everybody equals about two. It does. You, your spouse, and if you have a dog, three. Three. If it's a concern, then by all means, here's how you turn it to not be grumbling or complaining. You talk about it vertically, not horizontally. Amen. You take it to the one that can do something about it, and you don't just bring it out here, then we can't do anything about it. Because all you're doing then is bringing it to yourself. You're, 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 you're massaging your own bitterness. And what happens is this. It, what, it begins to get into you to a place where now it's destroying others around you. Listen, there are times in the body of Christ we have a legitimate concern maybe about someone else in the church. We may see them struggling or we may see them making choices that are, that are not biblical or we may see them uh, just going down a, a dark place. And can I tell you, God will give us insight sometimes into other people in that way. But it's not for us to criticize them or tell everybody else about it. It's for us to pray about them and to pray for them. And if God opens the door, to walk beside them so that we can build them up. Listen, we don't go to other people and show our concern. That's disunity. It's actually gossip, and it tears down instead of building up. And I don't know about you, but after reading Numbers and 1 Corinthians, I fear God a whole lot more than I fear you. In my own authority, in my, my own position, in my own denomination, I have to be careful. There's always things I can disagree with leadership about. I'm fixing to go to a meeting in Orlando. There'll be like 500 leaders there, and they're going to talk about stuff that half of it I don't even care about, but it's all important. And I may, I may totally disagree, but I'm actually not saying, man, that guy's a jerk. What was that all about? No, I'm, if there's a real concern, I'm going to step to the mic and say, hey, I got a question. Let's talk about it with authority. Three reasons we should walk in unity before I lose y'all. Three reasons we should not grumble. Three reasons we should not grumble. Number one, we should not grumble for our own sake. Philippians 2.15, that you may be blameless and innocent. Do you realize that you are in a process that God is working? We talked about it a while ago, sanctification. That you may be blameless and innocent. I would say that none of us are there yet, but he is moving us in that direction, right? That we may be blameless and innocent. Remember that he who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. So God is working. We are not what we ought to be, but we are not yet what we're going to be. But when we grumble and complain, what we do is we stop the process and we stop the growth. When we quarrel and complain, we don't become because we can't be blameless and innocent if all we're doing is grumble, 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 grumble all the time. It doesn't work. 
Some may wonder why they never grow in the Lord. Some may wonder why they feel stuck. Can I tell you, it may be because you complain all the time or you're, you have a critical spirit and it's not helping you and it's not helping the church and you're not receiving from the Lord because what, this is what happens. As we talk about our complaint over and over and over again, it lodges in our hearts bitterness and it becomes an impediment to our growth and ultimately to our joy. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. So the thief of joy is really a complaining heart. The thief of joy is really a grumbling spirit because it closes our ears to what God is saying to us through Scripture and the words of others. It gets in our heart and it becomes a stronghold in our life and we need a breakthrough. And we need God to break through because otherwise it just keeps us in one place, not growing at all. So the first reason we shouldn't grumble is for our sakes. The second is for the sake of others. Verse 15 again, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. God has called the church to stand out in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Listen, what he's saying is this. The world's bent out of shape. Would you agree with that? The world's been out of shape. Our, our nation's been out of shape. Our, our, our community's been out of shape. Anything outside of God's will is bent out of shape. And he said, if I am making you blameless and pure, then you, you ought to stand out when everything else is crooked and out of shape around you. Purity, innocence. So much so that he says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. If you go out on that dark night and you get outside of the lights of Charlotte and you, you look up in the heavens and you realize how amazing things stand out in the dark sky, he's saying that's what your life is when you are pure, when you're blameless, when the process is working through you. When you, stop, when you continue to grumble, it goes against that. But when you stop grumbling, it increases your ability to witness to the world. Mike's opinion. The world does not expect much out of Christians these days. The bar is very low. It really is. But when we live in such a way, in contentedness, in joy, in peace, in the face and in the midst of our circumstances, which are not always great, because remember, we live in a sin-cursed world and we are caught up in the backwash of other people's sins at the same time. But in, if we live with that contentedness, joy, and peace, now we're living in such a way that they might just be interested in why we are living the way we do, and now we can give them the message of the hope that's within us. You see, have you been, ever been around someone who just complains all the time? And don't look at your neighbor. They're like, <laughs> you just get tired of it, right? You're like, man, can we go? You don't want to listen to it, and you love them. I can guarantee you the lost don't want to listen to it either. Because if we've been grumbling all the time or we're grumbling about the church or we're grumbling about leadership or about our lot in life, what the non-believer hears is that your God is not a good God and the church is not a place to turn to in time of need. So why would they care to hear anything else about God? If, if we are the example, and we're just always, I hate my job, hate my neighbors, hate my, I mean, don't even like my dog. Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Why? He obviously has not changed your life. Wow. Why? So for their sake, for others' sake. You see, we've got to be very careful about this. 
Because in our grumbling, we can sometimes undercut the authority that God has placed in our lives. They grumbled against Moses, right? The authority God had given them. And we got to be careful. And again, I, I just teach it. It's what they, Paul wrote, okay? This is not self-grandizing. If you just constantly grumble about the leadership over your life, be, parents, be careful. What you're doing is you're setting your kids up for failure when it comes to authority as well. I taught this on Father's Day. Be very careful about that. Because what we're saying is, listen, you can't trust who you may need someday in a time of need. And you can't go there because we're saying, hey, that, the church is just something you don't want to be a part of. And again, churches, <laughs> I love the church, but we're a mess. Let's just be honest. Don't say amen too loud, but we are. <laughs> the first two churches I served in ministry, man, they, they were the most fighting bunches I've ever been around, man. It was like a, it's like a cage match. It was, you know, we love Jesus, man. We're taking sister so-and-so out today. And I spent like, 12 years of my life trying to untangle that mess. And I tell you, nobody got saved there until the mess got straightened out. So we've got to be careful when our grumbling, because if not, we're setting people up to fail. Listen, Philippians 4.8 is the best thing. Philippians 4.8, I can't, I can't wait to teach thoroughly on this in a few weeks, but he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Because life's not fair. It can be difficult. But when you walk in the strength of joy, our witness is strong because we can talk about the goodness of God no matter what our circumstance. And we truly engage in the body of Christ and we go through difficult circumstances. We can also say, I have brothers and sisters in Christ that are closer than my own family. And they can step in when I need and they can hold me up when I'm weak or they can even feed me when I need help. So for God's sake, for the lost sake, for our own sake, and finally, and again, this sounds so self-grandizing, for the sake of leadership, Paul ends it there, for the sake of the pastor. I don't write the scripture, I just teach it, okay? But in verse 16, he says this, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I, this is Paul speaking, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. One day, I'm going to stand before God just like every one of us. But I'm going to give an account for you. You won't have to give an account for me. I'm cool with that, the moment I said yes to God. But what he's saying is, when we're walking in unity, man, it's fun. We're, we're walking together. We're seeing things happening. We're seeing people being fed. We're seeing buildings being built. We're seeing lives being changed. We're seeing people being baptized. Why? Because we're working together in unity. And you know what? It makes my life a joy. But can you imagine the smile it puts on God's face? Because one day I want for you what I want for me. And that is, I want whatever happens here at Hope, God gets all the glory. And when I give an account to him, if I've done my part well, if you've done your part well, guess what we're going to hear? Well done. Good and faithful servants. I gave you a little thing. Now I'm going to give you a whole lot more. Guys, that's where unity takes us. So what do you do with this? What do you, this is the hardest thing in sermons. What do you do with this? Well, I would say, number one, if you're under deep conviction right now for causing this unity, stop it. I mean, that's the most obvious, right? It's like quit. Done. Repent. And who you hurt, go back and undo it. 
But what I really believe is this. I really believe that some today are so close to, a, to seeing what they've wanted God to do in their life. You're so close. You're so close to a turnaround. You're so close to a breakthrough. You're so close to an to a, a, a outbreak that you just finally find that freedom that God has promised you. And this message may be a key to that breakthrough for you. Because I know when I prayed through it this week, I'm like, oh God, in the areas where I've developed a discontented spirit, God, forgive me. And God, help me to see things through your eyes. It may be that you're walking in a situation right now that's not good. Listen, there's, that's, that's life. But can I give you a prayer today that may help you pray in those times? And my prayer for you is this is not your prayer all the time. But there are seasons where we're going to go through circumstances, guys. They're just hard. We're going we're to face challenges on this side of eternity that we can't, we can't overcome in ourselves. But God says we are more than conquerors through him. So I wrote this prayer. Let me just share this with you. Then we're going to bring it to a place where we pray. And it's simply this. I said, God, I, I, may, not under, I may not understand my circumstance. I may not understand why you have me here. But I know you and your heart toward me. So, Father, I can't wait to see what you're going to do in and through me and through your church. That's just honest praying. That's transparency. God, I don't get it. I don't know why we're going what we're going through, God. I don't get why it's hard. I, 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 I can't say, God, that I wake up with a joy saying, bring it on. No. But, God, I know you. I know your heart toward me. I know your heart toward the church. And I can't wait to see you. God, work in such a way that people will say, only God could do that. Only God could do that. So before I pray for you this morning, let me just summarize it back. Because we're going to move on to a different topic. And you all may say, amen, next week. The key to unity begins with humility. I'm not all that but I am who God has made me to be, to be part of your life. And together we're better. Amen. But it starts with humility. The proof of unity and the proof of humility really is an action. And we, we read it while ago in, in the message, Eugene Peterson used this word. He called it responsive obedience. Because the greatest proof of humility is obedience. Christ humbled himself to the obedience on the cross. He said, Father, I don't want to go there. If there's any other way, take it out. Take it from me, Lord. If there's any other way, let this cup pass me. But, what did he say? But, Father, not my will. Yours be done. So the action is responsive obedience. And the attitude that comes to bring us to that is an attitude of gratitude and an attitude of contentment. And I believe one of the biggest impediments to just walking through that little triumphant is this. If you're going to be one that walks in unity and experience God's flow and blessing in that part of your life, then you've got to have unity between your life and God's word as well. You can't come and worship God when you have no intention of changing the parts of your life which are not in alignment with his word. You can't come and say, God, give me what I need. And yet the rest of the week you're saying, God, I'm living my life my way. I don't care what your word says. There's got to be unity. Congruence would be another good term. There's got to be a, a unity there. Because that's the only way blessing flows, guys. What Paul was saying to the church at Philippi, I say to the church at Hope, 
God wants to bless you. God wants to fulfill things in you that he put there before you were born. God wants you to experience him in a greater way. God wants you to, to embrace all that he has and let that witness be a, a bright shining star in the dark sky. But it doesn't happen unless there's unity between God's word and your life.